0: Father, as we come before your word now, we pray that you would speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're starting a whole new series today, which we're going to be working through uh, for about half the autumn, looking at the book of Genesis. And the word Genesis means origins or beginnings. And the book of Genesis is a whole book of beginnings, a book of origins. It's not a science manual, but it is scientific. That's really important. It isn't a science manual, but it is scientific. And it records for us the origin, the beginning of this world, of its plants, of its creatures, and of course mankind. And the book of Genesis is hugely, it's, it's massively important because the first 11 chapters lay down so many things that as Christians we build our lives upon and the, pretty much the entire doctrines of the New Testament, of the church, find their roots and are rooted and built upon the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Genesis introduces God to us. Genesis tells us where this world came from. It tells us where we come from, that we've been made in the image of God. Genesis introduces marriage to us, a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman united by God. Genesis introduces sin to us and it introduces the need for a solution to the sin, and it even introduces the solution himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. It introduces the doctrine of work, that we should work to eat and then we should rest. In fact, I would argue there isn't a single Christian doctrine that we uh, follow, that we teach, that we believe, that doesn't find its roots and its origins right there in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that's why they're so important. And it's so important that we look at them, that we study them, that we believe them, because everything else is built upon those first 11 chapters of Genesis. But before Genesis is a book about origins and beginnings, it's a book about God. Actually, the whole Bible is a book about God. The Bible, the Word of God, exists that we might know God. It's been said that the Bible is God's love letter to mankind. It's the the account of how God reveals himself progressively throughout history to his people to creation, to his people and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ and shows his love for us as Jesus lays down his life for us. So we're going to start today, we're going to read Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read Genesis 1 right the way through to Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. And I'm going to wear my funky glasses again as we do so. Hopefully by next week I'll have a new pair. Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to read from verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, a first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse And separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increasing number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And the very first verse in the Bible tells us about God. In the beginning, God. Now you should have an outline on your seat if you want to use that. You can uh, there's, there's various things to fill in. The verses are all in there. There's a few quotes and so on and a few websites. And we'll follow that through as we go on. But this very first verse picks, uh, starts the Bible. In the beginning, God. Before there was anything else, God is there. And this verse tells us that time and matter and this world had a beginning. But before it began, God existed. In other words, God is eternal. God doesn't have a beginning. God God doesn't have an end. He's not created. He's not a physical being. He is an uncreated spirit. Quite simply, God is. He just is. He always has been. And he always will be. And it's mind-blowing, isn't it? As I was studying this this week and in previous weeks, it kind of it messes with your head a little bit. It's, it's difficult to really grasp this concept. God just always has been. He just is. He's a spirit. It's mind-blowing. And we'll never really get our heads around this concept simply because we are humans with a finite mind. But God is God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's ever-seeing. He's, he's all-present. He's ever-present. And He is eternal. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, God says this, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord." As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Amen? Amen. we try that again? Do we believe that God is an awesome God? Amen. This is the God who created everything. He just spoke and the world came into being. And he's always existed. He's always been there. He speaks with power and it happens. And so Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book that begins the Bible, begins with God, the all-powerful, the all-present, the the all-seeing, all-knowing, eternal God. And it's this God, not some freak of nature, not some big bang in space billions of years ago. It is this God that created everything out of nothing. When time begins, God is there. And it is God who creates time and it is God who creates the heavens and the earth, the Bible teaches us. Look at what Colossians 1 verse 16 in the New Testament says. It says this, speaking about Jesus, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now this verse is actually speaking about Jesus and it teaches us that Jesus is God's eternal son. He is God the Son. Jesus wasn't created. He became a human being when he was born but he has always existed. He is the eternal Son of God. And it was Jesus, this verse tells us, that created. All things were created by him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, that created all things. But Colossians 1.16 also reveals another hugely important fact about creation. It says this, all things were created by him and for him. Note that last phrase, all things were created for him, for Jesus, for God. All of creation, everything that exists, exists for God's glory. All of creation exists for God's pleasure. This earth, its inhabitants, we're all here to bring pleasure, to bring glory to God. Our very purpose for living, for existing, is God-centred, or it should be God-centred, not self-centred. And that should really challenge us, shouldn't it? Because the reason we exist, write this down, the reason we exist is to bring pleasure and glory to God is to bring God pleasure and glory. That's the reason we're here. Now, our media, our world around us tries to tell us that we're here for other reasons. It's about uh, happiness, it's about the pursuit of happiness, it's about the big dream, it's about achieving all our plans and goals. That's not what we're here for. We're here, we're put on earth to bring God glory. It's not about us, it is all about Him. The Bible teaches us that it's the opposite way around to how the world teaches us. We are not the center of the universe. God is at the centre and we revolve around him just as our planet revolves around the sun. It's all about him because in the beginning God, before anything else was God, he is there and it's all about him. This creation is here for his pleasure. It is his and you are here for, you, for his pleasure, not for our own pleasure. God created you, created me to bring him glory. It is all about God. It's all about Jesus. Now Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. He started with creating light and darkness. He created days, he created time itself. And his work of creation is completed in six days later as he uh, creates the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. But you say, are you really suggesting in this day and age that we should take this literally? Are, Are you really kidding me that we're meant to be taking this literally? Did it really happen in six days, about 6,000 years ago? I mean, that's what the Bible teaches if you go through the Bible. I thought science, surely I thought science had, had proved that it happened billions of years ago and that it took place over billions of years. Life forms slowly evolving until what we see today. Well, that's what we hear constantly on the TV, isn't it? Almost every night you put the news on and there's this dinosaur being discovered and this, that and the other. They've been discovered, yeah, but they don't teach what people are saying they teach. And the media is constantly bombarding us and science or or some science and and the media constantly coming at us, teaching us, trying to uh, brainwash people into believing that we are the product of slime evolving over millions of years and random mutations until what we see today. But it isn't true. Science has proved nothing of the sort. It will tell you it has, but it has not. Now you might find, I'm not a scientist, but I will attempt this morning just in a brief way to show that that isn't the case despite what the media will tell you. The theory of evolution, and that's what it is, a theory, has massive and major flaws in it. Huge, massive flaws in it. And this is not me saying this. Is, this is eminent scientists saying this. I don't have the, the, the time this morning to deal with this in detail. But I would encourage you to check out the two websites that I've put on your outline, Answers and Genesis and creation.com or creation.org. And there's a whole way there of looking at all the different stuff that we're bombarded with and testing this out and you will see It's just a house of cards that comes crashing down. All sorts of stuff that's dealt with there, things like radiocarbon dating and radiometric dating, all shown to have major flaws and major errors and major problems in them. And yet they're taken as as kind of gospel truth and whole theories are built on them. And it's great to see, if you look on these websites, many examples of the things that are presented just as fact by the media and by some scientists that are actually nothing of the sort. Now what I want to do, just to kind of back this up just briefly, just show you a DVD clip of two eminent scientists, leaders in their fields, at top universities around the world, who reject evolution and who take the Bible literally. So we're just gonna watch this clip and then we'll continue. Thanks.
1: It's taken for granted in the modern world of science that ancestral fish appeared in a primeval ocean, then crawled out of the water and became amphibians. Amphibians changed into reptiles and reptiles into mammals. Evolutionists claim that other reptiles shed their scales, grew feathers, and took to the skies to become birds. But reptiles and birds are very different. Reptiles have no genetic information for wings or feathers. To change a reptile into a bird would require the addition of huge amounts of complex information. Darwin reasoned that, with a bit of luck, the accumulation of enough small changes could even turn reptiles into birds. Michael Denton says it
2: cannot be done. One can quote lots of examples in the biological realm of things which seem, as it were, beyond the reach of that simple Darwinian mechanism. There's things like the avian lung, there's the feather, there's the amniotic egg, bacterial flagellum, I mean really a vast number of systems which have that unique watch-like sort of complexity that you find in nature, where in fact to have the system functioning you need A, B, C, D so forth all in place, interlocking like together, before the thing will function. It's very difficult to see how those sorts of things were, were arrived at undirected, by undirected processes. I mean you could take the feather for example. The flight feather is a very complicated structure of tiny interlocking hooks and barbules which hold the, um, the, the parts of the feather together. And uh, it's these tiny little micro adaptations within the feather which, give it its, um, it, which adapt the feather for flight. And uh, the Darwinian model of evolution requires that the intermediates are fully functional. And I can't imagine how you can get to such ends uh, without having to sort of go through structures which are really not, not functional uh, in some sense, in some biological sense.
1: Reptiles and birds also have totally different reproductive and respiratory systems. In reptilian lungs, air passes in and out of only one tube, which ends in tiny air sacs. But in birds, the air flows continually through the lungs in one direction, through a complex system of interconnected air sacs connected up with its hollow bones. Darwinists claimed that reptilian lungs changed into birds' lungs through a lot of intermediate stages. But Michael Denton says half formed lungs won't work because the transitional form cannot breathe. Any intermediate stage would result in extinction of the species.
2: Well, the avian lung is an example, um, like the living cell or like the feather, of a, a highly complicated system, very, very involved, very complicated, which, as far as I can see, you can only conceive of it functioning as a, for um, a respiratory gas exchange. Um, if the whole current structure and order of it is in place It's one of the toughest examples in nature of a highly complex system composed of a whole lot of interacting components all of which must be there as they are in every single bird's lung before the thing would function In the case of the avian lung, this is for me um, a very tough nut for Darwinists to crack because I mean I can't imagine how uh, that sort of the lung and other, and other analogous things like it could come about as a result of the accumulation of small random changes. For simple life
1: forms to evolve into more complex ones requires a massive input of new information. A microbe has about two books of 500 pages of complex coded genetic information on its DNA. A human has the equivalent of at least 1,000 books To transform a microbe into a human means adding a whole library of new information. So where does this new information come from? Professor Werner Gitt is a specialist in information theory and a director at the Federal Institute of Physics and Technology in Brunswick, Germany. He says the evolution of complex life forms from simpler ones by selection of lucky improvements is impossible because there is no source of new information. The biggest problem in evolution is the origin of information. Where is the information coming from? It is impossible to come from a simple uh, living being uh, to to an elephant or to a human being. It needs uh, very much more information. And information cannot coming by a random process. Darwinists say the new information comes from genetic mutations that are passed on from one generation to the next. Genetic mutations are random errors, rather like mistakes made when copying a text. According to evolutionists, the most favorable of these mutations are preserved by natural selection. It's taken...
0: Thanks, Matthew. Okay, I hope that seeing that clip has at least made you think and reassess your own beliefs that science or or, or some scientists have by no means disproved the the literal reading of Genesis 1 to 11 and that not all scientists sign up to Darwinian evolution, uh, that there are many, many eminent scientists who hold to a literal... Uh, interpretation of the Bible. Now, I can stack up a whole load of these guys, and you might still not believe me because you can find other guys who will say something different. But I hope at least it's made you think, reevaluate. If you bought into what I believe is, a, is a, just a, a satanic lie, that Genesis 1 to 11 is symbolic or is mythical, then it's hopefully at least made you reevaluate that. That science is not uniform, it doesn't accept these things in the way that we're taught it does or it's presented as being. But why does it matter? Why does it matter if the early chapters of Genesis? are meant to be taken literally or, or not taken literally. I want to suggest just a few reasons this morning why I think it's really important that we take uh, the, the Bible literally and particularly uh, in a, in a six-day creation and in a young earth. The first reason is this, if you want to write this down, the reliability of the Bible, the reliability, the integrity of the Bible. If we relegate the first 11 chapters of the Bible to the status of myth or to symbolism which is what we're required to do if we buy into Darwinian evolution, then where do we stop? At what point, as we're reading through the Bible, do we start to take it as factual truth? Let me read what Paul says to to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says this, All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, every word of the Bible is accurate, is reliable, has come from God, and every word ought to have 100% authority over our lives. So when we read that God created the world in six days, does he mean that? Well, that's what God says. And clearly he doesn't mean six periods of time because Genesis 1 verse 3 tells us that the creation of days as we know them took place on the first day of creation. Look at what it says. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Not the first period of time, not the first period of millions of years, the first day. Periods of time lasting billions of years don't have daytime, don't have nighttime. Only literal 24 hours uh, have daytime and nighttime and that's why God uses this kind of language. See, when God uses particular language in the Bible, he's not out to trick us, he's not out to confuse us. And you don't need to be an academic to understand it. There doesn't need to be some elite group who we have to go to to help us interpret and decode what God is saying. What God writes is what we're intended to understand. A simple rule of of biblical interpretation is this is to ask when we read a text, what is the normal, historical, contextual meaning of that word? What were the people who wrote, who re- who wrote that and what were the people who read it for the first time have understood by those words? What would the original readers have understood the text to mean when they read it or when they read it? It's what we call the plain meaning of the text. We're not looking for some hidden meanings and hidden codes here in the text. We read it, the plain meaning of the text, if a Bible or a part of the Bible is not meant to be taken literally, then usually what you see in the passage is um, language which makes it clear that it's symbolic or it's poetic. And Genesis doesn't do that, and we haven't got time this morning, but if you structurally analyse Genesis, it is thoroughly narrative, historical narrative. It is not written as symbolism, it's not written as poetry or anything like that. And if we relegate the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the flood, the creation and so on, to the status of myth or to symbolism, then where do we stop? At what point do we start to read the Bible as factual text? Is it, is it when we get to G- G- Genesis 12, so Abraham's real but everything before him is just myth or symbolism? Or does it start when we get to Exodus or to 1 Kings? Or, or do we start only when we get to Matthew in the New Testament and so on? What else might not be literal in the Bible? What else are we not meant to be taking literally? Because science has proved that dead men don't rise again. Science has proved that men don't walk on water. Science has proved you can't turn water into wine. And yet the Bible teaches us that. So was Jesus really in the tomb for three days? Did he really feed in excess of 5,000 people? Did he really walk on water? Or are these just myths symbolic of some greater, deeper truth that we might uh, try and find and see? I would argue strongly that the rest of the Bible writers and uh, uh, chiefly and, and most importantly that Jesus himself treated Genesis as factual. Remember this, Jesus was both the divine author of the book of Genesis, Jesus is God the Son, God authored the book of Genesis, every word is God breathed. So Jesus is the divine author and in fact according to Colossians he is the creator himself. And yet Jesus as a man here on earth clearly over and over again, presented Genesis as being literal, historical fact. So if Jesus presented Adam as a real, literal man, which he did, set in real, literal, chronological events, which he did, then I think we really need to think seriously about following the example that Jesus set for us. The second reason is the sanctity of human life. If, the, if we see the creation of humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, for instance, as myth or somehow symbolic, then we remove the sanctity of human life. Human life just becomes the product of millions of years of random mutations rather than a unique creation at a specific point in history by uh, God and made in his image. And so we're free to treat humans as if they were animals. We're free to abort unwanted babies. We're we're free to uh, bring unwanted lives to an end, lives that are inconvenient or too expensive to care for. But as we'll see next week, Every single human being is made in the image of God and is created to live in a living relationship with the eternal God. Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. The third reason is racism. Evolution gives racism its power and its legitimacy. Dr. David Rosevear, a research chemist at the University of Bristol, and also a Christian who believes God created the world in six days. He wrote these words: "If man came down from the trees, which clearly he doesn't believe they do. But if man came down from the trees, some races are closer to the apes than others. Some such people are less advanced." He continues. Both Darwin and Huxley, in their published letters, expressed racist views. And he continues: Only allegiance to the evolutionary worldview enables one to conclude that some races are inherently more advanced or primitive. The Bible, of course, refutes that as being an utterly repugnant concept, that all humanity is equal and created, that we've all descended from one man and woman made in God's image and we're all equal and all loved and valued by God. The fourth reason is sin and our need of a saviour and this is possibly I think the most important one one which we don't think through when we buy into Darwinian evolution or even theistic evolution which I don't believe in either but even in theistic evolution we need to think this through the whole concept of sin and salvation because it's crucial. And we accept these things from the media and from things going on around us without thinking about them uh, logically and biblically. If we believe if we believe that mankind walked on the earth, be, uh, sorry. If we believe that before mankind walked on the earth, there have been millions of, la- of years of layers being laid down, which is what Darwin and evolutionary teaches, then death must have existed before Adam existed. Okay. If we believe that there are millions of years of layers being laid down, then death must have existed before Adam existed, because in the earth's layers, we find death everywhere. The earth's layers are full of fossils and we'll look at the fossils in a few weeks with the flood but fossils are dead animals and we find fossils that are diseased. There are fossils with arthritis. So the earth, if it exists for millions of years being laid down in layers over millions of million years before Adam came into being then death already exists and we live in a, 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 a Adam came into a world which was full of death and decay and, uh, and, and disease and so on. So in the alleged millions of years before mankind, death, disease and decay existed if you buy into an evolutionary worldview. However, what does God-breathed scripture say? Firstly, a couple of key points. After creating Adam, we read these words in Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. When God declares something good, it must be good. It cannot be full of death and disease and decay over millions of years. God creates it and he says it's very good. Then in Romans 5, verse 12, and this is key, Romans 5, verse 12, we read these words, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Sin entered the world through one man and death came into the world through sin. According to the God-breathed words of God in Romans 5, death was the result of sin. Adam and Eve sinned and as a result of their sin, death came into the world. That is when death came, not before Adam came into the world. Romans 8.20 tells us that as a result of Adam's sin, the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Creation is in bondage to decay, Paul writes. It's frustrated because it's not what God created it to be. And the reason it's in decay and it's, and it's in bondage is because of Adam's sin. Paul argues in Romans that sin comes into the world through Adam, and death through Adam's sin. And then decay and creation is is, is in the mess it's in because of Adam's sin. But if when Adam was walking around, he was walking upon layers of dead things that had been put down over millions of years, then the Bible is wrong, and sin and death didn't come into the world through Adam's disobedience. We cannot have both. We cannot buy into even a theistic evolutionary worldview and hold Paul true in Romans. The two things are incompatible. So if sin didn't come about because of Adam and death is just part of a natural universe, then why did Jesus come to earth? Without the original sin of Adam, without the fall of man, which the Bible says took place after creation, what is the purpose of the incarnation? Jesus dying on the cross and the Christian faith in itself. If we don't believe in a literal Adam's original sin, then Jesus is reduced to a mere man bent on a, mere, on a misguided mission. This quote appeared in the American Atheist magazine in 2002. Christianity has fought... Notice, the evolutionary, you get this. They understand it all too well that it all hinges on this. Christianity has fought and still fights and will fight to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason for Jesus' earthly life. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Evolutionary, Dominion evolutionists get this. They understand the stakes that are uh, uh, in existence. So, you see, it really is an either-or. We cannot readily accept the New Testament and God's offer of forgiveness of sin through Jesus if we don't really believe in a literal, real Genesis 1 to 11, or if we think it's just symbolic. It doesn't add up. But why do people, why do we have a problem with six days? Well, the main reason is that we've been bombarded for 150 years with this continuous stream of propaganda telling us that science has proved something which it hasn't. Telling us that science has proved that this world has evolved over billions of years. Science hasn't proved that, and yet the the continuous media bombardment, it, it comes at us all the time. It starts in school, we go right throughout life. But as we've seen, the theory itself has no actual basis, no factual basis. And one of the reasons for it is to try and explain away the many, many layers in the Earth's surface, which are there, no doubt about that. And the variety of species that are found on the earth. But we'll look at that in a few weeks. See, the belief is that it took millions of, of years for each layer to be laid down. Yet, yeah, a couple of things here. Mount St. Helens in the USA, I remember uh, as a young kid when Mount St. Helens blew up, I think it was 1980, uh, or the early 1980s, and Mount St. Helens blew up and volcanic deposits were laid down up to 600 feet high in just three hours. Yet... Those rocks, if you go along the season today, have the appearance of being millions of years old. Another aspect of evolution is that animals have evolved, or this is the thinking anyway, have evolved from one kind to another. So you have a reptile evolving into uh, a bird, which these two guys have already said isn't possible without a a massive amount of new information coming in. Now there's clearly much evidence of uh, variation amongst animals. Reptiles change and vary, birds change and vary. That's what we call microevolution. But there isn't a shred of proof that reptiles have evolved into birds, what we call macroevolution. Charles Darwin, interestingly, wrote these words himself. He said this, not one change of species into another is on record. We cannot prove that a single species has been changed. This is the guy that started it and yet in his own writings accepts that a key part of evolutionary theory is missing. Now, I've got some great DVDs which I'm happy to lend you, called Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. And they give example, one after the other, of different animals that had to have been created intact, completely, otherwise they wouldn't function. They could not have various stages growing. They either had to be there in entirety or they wouldn't function. They would die out immediately. A great one is the Bombardier Beta, which has two gas chambers. And unless those things are working in uniformity, the animal would just explode all the time. So it cannot have evolved. It must have been created in entirety, otherwise it would just keep exploding. And exploding Bombardier beetles don't reproduce. If you want to check that out, just go on the internet, uh, look look on YouTube for Bombardier beetle, uh, and and, and you'll see that. There are many, many examples like that. Evolution teaches us that layers upon layers have been laid down over millions of years, yet there's nowhere on the earth that the geologic column and timetable as it exists in school textbooks actually exists. It doesn't. There are many examples of layers being in different order. The order that's laid out in science books, there are places around the world where the geologic column is in a different order to the one that's presented in school textbooks. Or there are key ages missing, key levels that are meant to be there and are just missing in certain parts of the world. Now, what we'll see in a few weeks is that these layers and the fossil record, the dinosaurs and so on, we see these explained and answered in Genesis 5-9 to by a worldwide catastrophe in the flood of Genesis 5-9. to In Mexico, in Arizona, in Missouri and in Illinois, you'll find fossilised human footprints in the same layers of rock where dinosaur fossils are found. In Zimbabwe and Arizona, there are cave paintings of dinosaurs. Now, how do those cave dwellers know what the dinosaurs look like unless they lived at the same time? A key fact here, petroleum and natural gas are contained in underground reservoirs by relatively impermeable rock and in many cases, the pressure is extremely high and calculations have been shown and approved that the oil and gas pressures couldn't be maintained for much longer than about 10,000 years. Yet for evolution to be true, those reservoirs of oil and gas have to have been there for millions of years and that isn't scientifically possible. Evolutionists talk of missing links, pre-human skeletons, yet they have all turned out to be either false or fakes or humans. Nebraska Man was discovered in 1922. If you look in school textbooks, you'll still see these things being talked about, but they're not true. Nebraska Man was discovered in 1922. An entire skeleton was constructed to show what he looked like, but they only actually found a single tooth. And yet they present the whole thing as a fact. And years later, scientists discovered the tooth belonged to a pig. Piltdown Man, another one that you hear all the time, was discovered in 1912. Bones and teeth and primitive implements were produced and the being was, dele- was believed to date back 500,000 years. In 1956, it was discovered that it was a deceptive hoax. And yet experts had written PhD thesis on this, uh, this being, which was a hoax. You can check this out on the internet. It's all there or or, or get some good books. There are, uh, for instance, Neanderthal Man. Neanderthal Man was discovered about 100 years ago in Germany and it's just still regularly put out on the media as being some kind of primitive life being and yet recent tests and DNA and various other tests have proved that actually Neanderthal Man is just the same as us. It is just human. It is no different to us. 100% human. And there are many, many, many more facts that I could r- rattle off for hours upon hours, that disprove evolutionary theory. And there are no facts that disprove a literal reading of Genesis 1. And if you want to look into these things in more detail, hopefully I've just kind of stirred you up a little bit. There are loads of resources I can recommend. I've got great magazines here called Creation Magazine. They're usually in the back. I've got a number of commentaries and books, and particularly the DVDs that I me- uh, I've mentioned. But also, do go on to the Answers in Genesis and the Creation Ministries websites. They are resourced by scientific experts. It's not people like me. Scientific experts in their field are dealing with all these things in detail. So what's the real reason behind the theory of evolution? It's an attempt to remove God and his claims over us. That's what it really boils down to. See, if there's no creator, there's no one to be accountable to. Mankind is sinful, and we don't like the fact that we're accountable to God. We like to be in charge of our own lives. That's what sin is. And if man can come up with a way of removing God as our creator and instead teach that we as humans are mere products of millions of years, of lucky mutations, then man and women can live as they wish. And that's why as Christians it's one of the reasons why we must refute evolution. God is our creator. We are accountable to him. And we ignore him and we, and we remove him from our lives at our peril. And any attempts to kind of fudge halfway houses of theistic evolution or or day-age theory, all this kind of stuff. doesn't stack up. It it is inconsistent with the Bible. The Bible has to be wrong or it has to be right. There's no halfway house here. Our entire Christian faith is built and rooted in those early chapters of Genesis. And my purpose today is to try and do a few things, to challenge, to encourage and to motivate you. I want to challenge you today, if you are, are not a Christian, if you deny the existence of God, hopefully, I just... In a humble way, try to encourage you to rethink and to check out your beliefs again and to look at the reality and the facts. If this morning, which is perhaps most of us here this morning, you are a believer and you love God and you love Jesus and you you live every day thankful that he died for you, can I encourage you? Perhaps you're struggling. Yeah, well, I I believe that, but I just struggle with these first 11 chapters of Genesis because all the stuff I've grown up with, all the stuff from the media, all the stuff at school... You can rely on the Bible. I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be a scientist. That's irrelevant. You don't have to be a scientist to take the Bible seriously. You don't have to be an academic. I can't do this, ju- this topic justice in 30 minutes. We thank God for academics and scientists, but we don't need to be them. I hope I've said enough just to provoke you a little bit this morning to see that you can rely on this book. It is, after all, God's Word. And we can take it literally. Just because David Attenborough or or, or Richard Dawkins says that we've evolved from slime, it doesn't make it true. You really can rely on God's word. It is true and he is true. It is an act of faith, but it's not blind faith. Because whilst there isn't one scientific fact that can prove evolution, there is a wealth of science that actually supports the Bible. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. It is by faith, but it's not blind faith, We understand, the writer of Hebrews says. There is logic, there is reasoning. So you can trust this book and you can trust its wonderful, amazing author. Please do check out the websites I've mentioned and look at these magazines and resources here. If you want to borrow some of them, you're welcome to. Lastly, I just want to motivate us this morning to be amazed and to marvel at our amazing, awesome God. And we're going to do that in a moment. But I just want to say, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. Do come and chat with me at, at, at the end. I'm happy to talk with you further and to look into this further. That, that's fine. You don't have to agree with me. That's fine. But I hope this morning I've just at least made you think and rethink and don't take everything we, we hear from the media as fact. Let's go back to the Bible and to go back to that awesome, amazing, creator God. We live in a world where a cheetah can run at up to 70 miles an hour. Insects can sleep for 17 years. Seals can remain underwater for 45 minutes. Eight-armed, ink-shooting octopuses that can eat their own arms and grow new ones. Falcons that can swoop down at 150 miles an hour. What an amazing creation. And why is it so amazing? Because the Creator is truly amazing. Time is gone, so we're just going to bow our heads and pray and humble ourselves before our great Creator. But as I've said, if you want to come and chat with me, uh, I may not be able to do it justice even in chatting afterwards, but we can always meet or chat uh, or continue the discussion uh, through the week or or, or next week or so on. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, we humbly, as your creatures, as those that have been created, bow before our Creator. Father, we want to worship you. We thank you that you are the great Creator who spoke and the world came into being. By faith we believe that the universe was created out of nothing. And we trust in you this morning. And we thank you that we can trust your word, that it's reliable, that it's scientific, that it's trustworthy, it's historical, it's accurate, down to the tiniest detail. Help us to trust your word, help us to trust in you, in a world which is so anti-God, so anti-your word and so anti-Christian. Help us to have faith and boldness and courage to stand true and to stand firm to your word. Help us to see that we exist for your pleasure. Help us this week to live that out, to seek to do whatever we can do to bring you honour and glory in a fallen world. Help us to do these things we pray and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.